0: This week's scripture reading is from 2 Samuel, from the 7th chapter. When the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to the prophet Nathan, Look, I am living in a cedar palace, but God's chest is housed in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go ahead and do whatever you are thinking, because the Lord is with you. But that very night the Lord's word came to Nathan. Go to my servant David and tell him this is what the Lord says. You are not the one to build the temple for me to live in. In fact, I haven't lived in a temple from the day I brought Israel out of Egypt until now. Instead, I have been traveling around in a tent and in a dwelling. Throughout my traveling around with the Israelites, Did I ever ask any of Israel's tribal leaders whom I appointed to shepherd my people, Why haven't you built me a cedar temple? So then, say this to my servant David. This is what the Lord of Heavenly Forces says. I took you from the pasture, from following the flock, to be leader over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have eliminated all the enemies before you. Now I will make your name great like the name of the greatest people on earth. I am going to provide a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and no longer be disturbed. Cruel people will no longer trouble them as they had been earlier when I appointed leaders over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. And the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make a dynasty for you. When the time comes for you to die and to lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your descendant, one of your very own children, to succeed you, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a temple for my name, and I will establish his royal throne forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Whenever he does wrong, I will discipline him with a human rod, with blows from human beings. But I will never take my faithful love away from him, like I took it away from Saul, whom I set aside in favor of you. Your dynasty and your kingdom will be secured forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported all of these words and his entire vision to David. The, my, my own journey into ministry was quite a long one. From when I first started asking other ministers about how they knew they were called to be ministers, which, by the way, they answered with the simple answer that if you're called to be a minister, there's nothing else you can do. You're, you can't prevent God from making you one. When I started that process until, from when I started that process until when I was ordained, was more than eight years. And when I got started in that process, I talked to many people, and some people took three or four years at kind of the minimum, and some people took 10 or more years to finish that process. And what I discovered very early on is that the American churches, at least, fall basically into two categories. One is a church government where the denomination sends out priests to uh, to the churches, and the churches have little or no say in who their priest will be. The Roman Catholic Church does this. Um, the uh, The United Methodist Church in the U.S. does this. And the second type of church is a church where the congregation has the majority of the say, or sometimes the entire say, in who their, their minister will be. These are the, the congregational churches, Presbyterian churches, Reformed, uh, the Lutheran churches. And what's interesting is that in the, in the first system, usually one is ordained by the bishop. In those churches because those churches are always the kind that are that are have a government that is um, top down and the bishop ordains and then you're you are ordained and you look for a call or, or you were sent somewhere i should say but you're, you're ordained as soon as you're finished with your whatever your process is and then you are sent to serve somewhere but in the second kind which is much more common really you are you finish your ordination process, and then before you are, are actually ordained, you're put in this status as kind of limbo status, where you're ordainable, pending a call. The Presbyterians, the the um, uh, the Lutherans, the United Church of Christ, the the UUA, um, and even the Episcopalians in the U.S. do it this way, and so the nightmare stories that I heard when I first started this process were of these people who when they got to the end of their process could not find a call and a call is just a fancy church word for a job, right? So they, they got to the end and then they, they couldn't find employment at a church. And since they couldn't find employment at a church as a pastor, they, their denomination would not ordain them because the only reason to ordain them was so that they could serve a congregation as a pastor. So all through my process, I was worried about this because I had heard of people who had gotten to the end of the process in both the UUA, the, United, um, the Unitarian Universalist Church where I started, <clears throat> excuse me, and the UCC, the United Church of Christ. Both I'd, in both those churches, I had talked to people who had waited five, ten years after they had finished their process before they, were finally, before they finally found a call and were ordained. And so I looked throughout my entire process, I looked for, I knew that I needed somewhere to go at the end. I needed somewhere to land. I needed somewhere to be called to. And so I was really focused on that. Uh, Early in my process, I I looked to the U.S. military. I looked into doing military chaplaincy. Um, I got very, very close to joining the U.S. Navy. I just had to finish, all I had to do was, was go to, to do the, um, the medical exam and everything, um, everything else was done. Uh, and then I decided, I talked to my wife about it and decided that was a bad choice for me and my family and decided not to do it. And then when I, uh, got into the UCC and I, and I came back to Austin, I thought, well, there's nowhere for me to land. So I should, I should really create a place. And my wife and I had talked about the possibility of starting a church for a long time. Um, you know, starting right after we got back from, from Berkeley when we moved back to Austin, because we had really enjoyed and really connected with the community in Berkeley that we were a part of. And there was nothing like that in Austin. And we thought, well, we should, we should create something like that community. And so we had thought about that, but I mean, really the reason for that was more because I was worried about where I was going to land, how I was going to get ordained. And there I did my internship at a, at a, Trinity Church of Austin in, in Austin, Texas, and that was really good. And then I found out about a church start in the area called Open Cathedral that was starting. And Open Cathedral is a fantastic community in, in Leander, Texas, which is a suburb of Austin. And when I when I went and spoke to the the church planter, the minister who was planting the church there, who he had been a minister for several years, and he was coming to Austin for the purpose of planting this church. And I met with him, and I was I wanted to be involved. I came to meeting early meetings. You know, I, I introduced myself to people. I, uh, you know, I, I was really trying and I was talking to him about what I saw as my role, what my role would be in this congregation as kind of an assistant minister, because I I felt like because I was working full time and it would not be feasible for me to stop working full time. I was going to have to be, um, what they call a bi-vocational minister, a part-time minister, basically. Because, um, I was going to need to do that. I I knew I would need to be an assistant minister somewhere because I knew there would be no church that would be able to pay me to be their full-time minister. And, and um, part of, part of a call in, in most of these denominations includes being paid for your work. Uh, It's very hard to convince an ordination committee to ordain you to a call where you're not actually being paid for your, for your work, which is really interesting. It's possible. It's just difficult. So, I was trying to kind of push my way in here, but it, it really was my ego pushing me into that. It was not what that community needed. It was not what God was calling me to do. It was my own ego trying to give me a way to, to you know, trying to think of any way I can to to get what I wanted. And so I, um, eventually the, the minister there, who was a great guy, uh, sat me down and, and told me, you know, this is not for you. This is, this is not, we, we, you are not what we need and this is not what you need. And, and you have to not be involved anymore with this community. And it was hard to hear that because I w I really liked the community. First of all, it was really nice and, and good people, but he was right. I mean, my, what I wanted and what they needed were very different things. And, I wasn't listening to what God was telling me to do. I was was pushing my own will, something that I've been guilty of many times in my life, pushing my own will and not listening to those around me, not listening to God. So then I thought, well, I did this internship at Trinity. Maybe Trinity will hire me on as an assistant minister. And so I kind of created a position for myself at Trinity as assistant minister and um, got them to hire me as an assistant minister and then when i completed my my uh, university work and i had gone through i'd done all the psych, the psychiatric assessments i had you know written sermons and theses and papers and uh, you know gone to denominational meetings and met a bunch of people and been in front of committees and uh, the very in the ucc the last thing you do is what's called an ecumenical council where they invite all of the churches in your area to send people to represent them. And they basically grill you. It's kind of like a thesis defense. They basically grill you on you. You write a paper, an ordination paper, and they grill you on your paper, on your beliefs and everything. Cause then I had that experience and then all that was done. I was approved for ordination pending a call. And I thought that Trinity would hire me and really they probably would have. And they, I, that I'm sure that would have gone through I would have been hired as assistant minister. They all liked, they liked to be there. It was going well. And, um, that would have been an, an opportunity to be ordained. And then I would be ordained in the UCC. Um, but I knew then I felt it. I felt it then that that was really me pushing my needs onto the congregation. It wasn't really that the congregation needed that. It was that I needed that. And I was using my experience of the congregation to to create an opportunity for what I needed, which is really not good. And so even though I was doing, I think I was doing good work there and people generally liked me there and and I had a great experience, it was for the wrong reasons, I think. Which is unfortunate because it was a really good, um, it was a good experience. It was very important in my discernment. So how many times have we been in a situation where What we want and what God wants for us are vastly different things. You know, this is this is where we find King David in our in our reading. So let's back up a bit for David, because a lot has happened. In the last our last reading we heard uh we heard about the birth of Samuel, who was a prophet, and how Samuel's mother, Hannah, devoted Samuel to service in, in God's church. So Samuel grows up, becomes head of the temple where he is. And uh, eventually he's told by God to anoint Saul to become uh, king of, of Judah and Israel because the Israelites want to have a king. They want to be like all the other nations around them and have a king. And God says, well, this is a bad idea. Samuel says, this is a bad idea. But since you want it so badly, we'll do it. And God chooses um, Saul to be king. But Saul doesn't follow uh, God's laws and disobeys God on several occasions. And so God becomes angry with Saul. Now Saul is fighting with the Philistines. And a very large giant of of a man, a Philistine named Goliath, comes out. And Saul offers a reward to anyone who can kill Goliath. And David comes, and David is just uh, a shepherd. David comes and defeats Goliath in a very famous scene um, and cuts off Goliath's head with Goliath's own sword. And Saul puts David in charge of his armies. And the people, David does really well, and and the people of Israel really come to love David. And Saul even promises David, Um, the hand of his daughter in marriage because his daughter is in love with David. But Saul becomes jealous because the people love David more than they love him. And so he tries to have David killed. There's also some stuff in here about Saul's kind of descent into madness. Um, But he tries to have David killed, but David escapes thanks to a warning from Jonathan, who is Saul's son. Uh, And Jonathan is is talked about as the one whom David loved. Uh, And there's a lot of interesting subtext in here. Uh, I, I think uh, honestly from from reading the text just plainly, I feel like the the relationship between David and Jonathan was very special. Maybe it was um, simply a, a a deep friendship maybe it was more than that. Um, the text doesn't really say it just says that they that they loved each other very much. So Jonathan warns David and David escapes. Then while David's gone, Saul sends his daughter to marry somebody else instead of David. Later on, David has a chance to kill Saul, but he spares him because he says that he will not raise a hand against God's anointed because God had anointed Saul to be king. Then in a big battle, Saul and Jonathan both die. Now it's a horrible thing. David is distraught over Jonathan's death. David is then anointed king by Samuel. Um, in judah the south but in the north saul's son ish bosheth is anointed king and so then a war um ensues between the two of them and david eventually comes out victorious ish bosheth is killed and david becomes king of a united um israel kingdom israel and judah and brings peace and brings a time of, of peace and prosperity uh, to the kingdom uh we, are, I've talked in the past about how Exodus, Genesis and Exodus are, are kind of myth, and then we get kind of into legend and things. We're pretty sure David was an actual person. There, there's, um, there's a lot of, uh, there's, not, there's not a lot of evidence, but there is evidence from other sources outside the Bible of the line of David. And so um, it's highly likely that, that David was an actual person and uh, this is kind of the point where the Bible becomes more about history as we would think of history, uh, today. So David becomes king and he brings this peace to his, his land. And he has a big palace built out of cedar because cedar is a very expensive thing to build something out of. You have to bring it from, from the mountains. So it's, it's very expensive. So, uh, he has his palace built of cedar, and then he thinks, you know, my palace is built of cedar, but God's house is still a tent. And what he means by this is, again, uh, I, maybe, I think I mentioned this last week, but God had given commands to Moses uh, on Mount Sinai about how to build the tabernacle, which was a large tent that could be taken down and moved with the people through the desert and been reconstructed to be a worship place. So it's like, it's like a church, but it's on the move. It's a tent on the move. So he says, you know, we should build God a, uh, a house out of, out of cedar, like my house. And Nathan, who is his kind who's kind of a religious leader, his prophet at this at this point, cause Samuel has died. Nathan, um says, yeah, you know, I mean, you're so in touch with what, with you, with God and what God wants. If you want that, that must be what God wants. Go ahead and do it. But then God comes to Nathan in a dream and says, tell David that he is not the one to build my house. But rather, I will build a house of him. I will make his dynasty reign over Israel forever. And his son will build a temple um, for God. David is a very important person in the Jewish um, Bible, in the the scriptures. And he's seen as kind of the archetype of... Um, obedience to God and, uh, his son Solomon, who will build the temple is also seen as a very important, very kind of archetypal leader, but this idea that, that God would keep the reign of David, the, the dynasty of David on the throne of Israel has been very important to the, to the Jewish people ever since. Um, you know this story is often the usually the 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 point of this bit of text when people give a sermon on i think is to talk about the dynasty of david because god saying that that david would be king over israel forever leads us into jesus later jesus is said to be a descendant of david they see him as being um you know, from the line of David, the house of David being a king like that. But I think there's a more interesting plot to this little bit of text, which is that David really wanted something. David had, was thankful to God for all that had happened for, for all of his success, his success and, and the peace that that God had brought and God wanted to, show his and god uh david wanted to show his his appreciation by building a material thing for god he he you know and this was very common in the in um this part of the world you know you can think of this I mean, a lot of people did this uh you know the the romans did this kind of thing the greeks did this kind of thing um the people of uh india and and asia did this thing in japan um great rulers would build temples to, to God that they wanted to gain favor from it's the same kind of thing David wants to build a temple to God to to continue to gain favor from god because God has been so good to david so far and he feels like how can you leave god living in a tent when he has this nice palace but God says no it's not it's not you um, it's not your time you it'll be your son's time your son will do this for you it's not it's not for you to do this rather i'm going to make a house out of you i'm going to and he goes god goes into this long discussion about that but i want to focus on the first bit <laughs> the not it's not your time you know god works on a completely different time scale than we do you know we we are finite beings we are limited through our understanding of time and space our lives are very short In in the uh, universal scope, you know, our our sun is billions of years old. Our planet's been around for millions and millions of years, and we've been here for so such a short amount of time as the human race. And our own lives are so short in that in that large um, scope of time. And God works in a com- in a completely different way. God, who is unlimited, who is not not limited by our understanding of the passage of time it was not limited by our understanding of space can can see our lives as a component an important piece of a much larger mosaic of existence and so i think it's really hard for us to grasp the time scales that god works on and i think many people have tried Uh, Many people have tried. many, Many people have tried to force God into the shape that they want God to have. They've tried to force God into words and ideas that limit God because our own understanding is limited. But instead, we just have to embrace the fact that we can never really know. God always resists being simplified. You know the the Israelites wanted desperately to enter the promised land after they left Egypt. They really wanted to go. They kept asking God to take them to the promised land, but God kept them in the wilderness for the the Bible says for forty years. But forty was just a, a number; that meant a whole lot. So it could be it could be forty literal years, but it could also just mean a long time. Um, but they were kept in the in the desert and for an entire generation. God waited for every one of the previous generation to die, and for their children to be in charge before they were led into the Holy Land. So that entire generation of Israelites, all they wanted was to be in the Holy Land, but they never got there. God never gave them, never let them go there. David wanted to build a temple for God, but that desire was really rooted in in David's own desire to receive blessings. You know, it was not, you know, I I don't think he had any any kind of um, ulterior motive, but I mean, just, he was hoping that God would continue to bless him. I mean, and instead God says, no, this is, this is not your time. Your, your son will do this, but this is not for you. You will never see this temple built. When the Babylonians defeated Judah and exiled the Judeans, the Judeans in exile clung to the same hope that one day God would, would take a descendant of David and put, put that person back on the throne of Israel and get rid of the Babylonians and get rid of all of the people who had, control of israel and and that their kingdom would be back to how it was before back to to as the readings say um you know to be stable and to not be attacked by their enemies and all these kinds of things and that really led to the the creation of this messiah concept they were looking for for a messiah someone from from the house of david who would come and free israel from all of its oppressors And when the Messiah finally did come during the rule of Rome over Israel, it wasn't in the form of a warrior king as they expected, but in the form of a poor prophet, an outcast, someone who ate with the unclean and argued with the religious um, experts. And so people didn't a lot of people didn't believe th- that this person could be the Messiah because he had not done the things that, that the Messiah was supposed to do. The Messiah was supposed to be a King. The Messiah was supposed to come in and, and start a war and, and, and conquer the enemies of Israel and, and bring Israel back into power and sit on the th- on the throne of David. And instead, uh, Jesus came and was executed by the Roman government for treason, uh, in the most, embarrassing way possible the most horrible way possible how could this be the messiah how could this be the one that god had sent to free israel from their oppression but it wasn't their physical oppression but their spiritual oppression that he was sent for you know in the in the time right after jesus those who did follow him felt like he that that he would return imminently. Jesus had said that he would come back and that nobody would know when that would happen and that they should all remain vigilant because he could come at any time. And his followers took that to mean that within their own lifetimes Jesus would return. And we see this in, in a lot of the writings of the apostles, especially in Paul, who tells us better to not get married, because because getting married is just gonna complicate things for you. And since Jesus is gonna come back before you die anyway better to not get married and not have to deal with that, right? But if you are married to go ahead and be with your, with your spouse, because that's, that's better than, than being, um, than, than, uh, uh adultery, but, <laughs> but better even than that to not get married at all. And that's because, like I said, I'm, you know, we're pretty sure that that Paul thought that that Jesus was coming back within his own lifetime. And as the apostles began to die and, passed on to the next generation and the next generation and people began to realize that oh Jesus is not coming back anytime soon. Then people became worried and they they wanted because of their own uh misery and their own difficult lives, they wanted Jesus to come and return and save them from that. And so they started looking at the text and trying to find ways to figure out when Jesus would come. And there have been Many times in the past two thousand years, when people have written prophecies based on various numerical understandings of the text, based on on different wording and translations and and whatever, and they've tried to, to determine exactly when Jesus would return and save them from this horrible world, effectively. But there's no way for us to know that. I mean, the, the Jesus even tells us there's no way for us to know that. And we forget in those moments that God works on a completely different timescale than we than we do. This is one of the arguments against universal salvation, as people say, "Well, you know, if someone if someone decides that they will not accept God, that they will not turn back towards God, who is God to force them? If God forces them to turn back, then that's not a choice." But that assumes, I mean, that assumes that someone could forever turn away from god given given full and complete real understanding of the truth you know right in their face com- you know proof of the truth of god's love that they could still continue against their own good um their their own uh what, what's good for them against what's good for them could turn away continuously forever i just don't think that's possible and i, th- I think god will eventually convince them to turn back towards God and and to be reunited with God because God has forever. And the concept of forever is so hard for us to to grasp as finite beings that are limited in our own time and and space. So I think, you know, what God tells us in, in many of these stories is not to look at our own motives not, not to to look to our own motives and our own behaviors um, to be the, the, the deciding factor of what we should do. So not to look into our egos. Not, not, not to let our egos drive us. Sorry, I got a little tripped up there. Not to let our egos drive us. Um, you know, when, when Jesus talks about be ready... Because it could come any time. He's not saying we should be figuring out exactly when that is, so that we can maximize our own, our own chance of, you know, of of being, um, of being let into heaven. You know, uh, there's a, a really funny line in one of the Simpsons episodes where, <laughs> talking to to I think it's to Bart about being a bad person, and Bart's like, "Well, I'll just you know, repent on my deathbed," <laughs> and they're like, "Oh, good point. That's a good out." You know, um, I mean that's the that's not the point. The point is to change your life to live more in the way that God wants us to live, to be good to one another, to improve the world we live in. You know, uh, recently there's been, and I say recently, I mean the last 50 to 100 years, there's been this this kind of what I would consider to be a, a dangerous branch of American Christianity that has come into existence. It's really focused on the end times, really focused on an event that they, they often call the rapture. When those who are chosen by God will suddenly be taken away and everyone else will be left, um, to live in, in misery for a thousand years. And there's a lot of information about this online, if you're curious. And if you really want, I could do a a more detailed sermon on this later, but, uh, the short versions, I don't, I don't believe in that, (laughs) but, uh, the focus on that, the focus on the end, warps their understanding of the gospel. I think because it becomes about me. It becomes about how do I perfect my odds of getting in? How do I convert everybody? Because oh my God, if my, you know, if my brother doesn't doesn't accept God, then when the rapture comes in twenty four months, um, he's gonna be he's gonna be left here, and he that that can't happen, you know. So I've got to do everything I can to convert him instead of thinking. What can I do to make to make the world a better place? How can I live more like how God wants me to live? When Jesus is talking in the in the text about it could come at any moment, his point is not um, to try and figure out when that is. His point is to always live your life in such a way that you'll be happy, whether that end comes because you die or that end comes because Jesus returns. You want to live your life in such a way that you will feel like you did a good job. You did all you could do. Um, like you're always trying to improve yourself and do better. So I think that we should not try to force God into our own ideas of time, but focus instead um, on, on ourselves, and on making the world a better place. So going back to my story from earlier, after I was proof ordination, I was offered this job in Tokyo. Actually, I was offered the job in Tokyo right before my ecumenical council right before I was a proof ordination and I accepted it because I felt like God was really telling me this is something that I should do. And people told me then that, that Japan would change my outlook on ministry and they're absolutely right. And when, when I got here, I took, uh, I intentionally took a year off from ministry. Uh, I, I, I went to church on a regular basis and I, I tried to help out with the homeless ministry here in Tokyo by making food for the homeless and things. But I, I purposely didn't, didn't take on any kind of leadership role for a year uh, so I could really think about what God was calling me to do. And after that, I felt like I had a much better understanding and I was able to pursue things um, much more intentionally. And then at exactly the right moment, this opportunity appeared for me to start this congregation. And it was, it was on God's time, not on my time. And I think that's, that has been a really important lesson for me. Like I said, God sees our lives as as one piece of a much larger mosaic. Uh, a very important piece. A piece that without us, that mosaic would not be the same, would not be what it is. But still, the timescales that God operates on are so much larger than our own. And so often when we feel stuck, we get f- frustrated with our lot in life, we, we wonder why God has brought us to where we are, where we should go, how we're going to get past this, how we can possibly survive, and when we find ourselves in that situation, we should stop and we should take a deep breath, and we should offer a prayer of thanks to God for what we do have, for what God has given us, and we should ask God to give us clarity, ask God to give us wisdom about God's will for us. Now we shouldn't use this as an excuse to stay in an abusive relationship or in a dangerous situation, or to not stand up uh, for those who are oppressed or in need. You know, sometimes people can use this idea of well, it's just God's plan as an as an excuse to maintain the status quo, and that's just not true. But in our regular kind of normal daily struggles, we often just need to remind ourselves that God—it's God—who is ultimately in charge of our lives and and not us. That God has a plan for us, but it's much longer than what we can see right now. So, sometimes we have to accept God's timing. Amen.